1: is Teresa. (laughs) I'm Gumby. Oh my god, I'm thrown off. Uh, We're in a hotel room right now. Um, So I don't know, just being inside is a little strange. I don't know how that just happened because we've been in this room for two days, but uh, recording is a whole different type of thing.
0: Hey, you want to say why we're in a hotel room?
1: Well, um, we, well Gumby has a former student who was recently on the show Naked and Afraid and fucking won. That was the first time I've ever seen three people on Naked and Afraid and two of them tapped out, like halfway through the 21-day challenge.
0: And usually I try to avoid names, especially last names, to protect people's privacy, but he's a public figure now, so that his name is Aosha Wells. And... A weird twist of fate. I was just sitting here after the show ended. It was a two hour Naked and Afraid. And of course, like, here's a guy I've known since he was eight years old. And I'm like, wow, you know, like watching him, you know, do his thing on Naked and Afraid. Right after that, you know, just kind of watching the next show that came up, I knew the dude in the next show. He's the guy that taught me the bow drill at the tracker school.
1: <laughs> Another Naked and Afraid episode was right after that. Two.
0: In a row. Yeah, his name was Tom, I believe McElroy is his last name. But you know how many people that I've seen on Naked Afraid that I personally know in life? Two. <laughs> and they were right side by side, just coincidentally. So that was really weird.
1: So uh, so yeah, we've been um binge watching South Park and Futurama um gathering up material for this podcast, which is episode ninety-nine. Rise of the post-human two. oh yes, two episode. I don't know how
0: you do it. Just two. <laughs> rise of the posthuman,
1: all right. So this is the second episode where we're exploring the broader um, umbrella of transhumanism and uh, check out the first episode. what was what was that? ninety eight?
0: It would have to be. It was the last episode.
1: Yeah, in this season. So um, definitely check that out. But we are going to um, catch you up a little bit with some things that Gumby wanted to add from uh, from the the timeline from last time.
0: Yeah, as I said, I was trying. Uh, there's so many ways to tell this story to get into this uh, topic of transhumanism. Um, and I decided to go with the timeline to kind of try to have the listener and myself sort of see it all put together, how we got to be here, what this agenda that I'm suspecting, even though that word doesn't get thrown around a, much, a lot, I'm suspecting the transhumanist agenda is actually the reason behind so much of what we see going on around us right now. More and more, I mean, the more threads we pull, the more our mouths just fall open like, holy crap. <laughs> this explains so much. Um, so we got to the early 80s last time, but as I'm going through the timeline, I'm realizing there were some things that uh, I just feel like we got to back up a little bit Um Because we were kind of going on a philosophical timeline last time. The way thinking sort of evolved um, that leads to the transhumanism of the first group that calls itself the Transhumanist Society, I think. Do you remember in the early 80s? Was that Max Moore and Tom Morrow?
1: World Transhumanist Society or something. Yeah, they were the
0: first group that identified themselves as organized transhumanists.
1: Yeah, and the transhumanists love to claim Anything they can. And at first, like Gumby said in the episode, the um, number one episode, there are a disturbing amount of links to um, how we got here in reference to our technologies and just the way that our thought process has come through the, the centuries. So, yeah.
0: So I started the philosophical timeline where the transhumanists themselves often started back at Gilgamesh, the story of Gilgamesh at the beginning of our civilization. <laughs> um, but now I want to back up a little bit and talk more about the physical timeline, the machines themselves. Because what we're talking about – and this is a big generalization because there's a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily label as a human or a machine that are really involved in this uh, Cloning, for instance, you know, uh, human enhancements that aren't just machines as we typically think of them, but are cutting-edge science, ways that we manipulate the environment around us. And what some people might call, and uh, I'm one of those people, a lot of unnatural ways, um, crossing some lines. But physically, you know, we don't have to go all the way back to Gilgamesh, I feel like, to tell this story. We can start with the Industrial Revolution. And is there anything you want to... Uh, say before I launch into this, I'm going to try to move pretty fast, but also, you know, I want to stop me if you want to inject any thoughts along the way. Um, but yeah, we're going to try to, to move past the early 80s, but I just want to back up and talk about a little bit about how physically we have already accepted the transhumanist doctrine. We are a transhumanist right now, and uh, I feel like we've been somewhat tricked into it.
1: You know, I don't have too much to say. All I know is I've been trying to hold on to a secret that (laughs) from since yesterday that may or may not blow your mind. Um we'll we'll see, but that comes in the nineteen forties. So take it (laughs) take it away, Gumby.
0: Well we'll wait for that. So the Industrial Revolution is typically thought of the eighty years between seventeen sixty and eighteen forty. And uh, one of the things I find remarkable about this Industrial Revolution, when I put it in the timeline, is this is right around the birth of America, the United States as we uh, know them. Um, and it's really interesting to think of it in that context. That America, you know, you think of all these other countries, England, uh, India, China, their roots go way before the Industrial Revolution. But our country, that's become this big superpower, this big player on the world stage was actually birthed during the rise of the machines. Part of the birth of America was involved and tied into the midwifery of bringing the machine into existence. Um, one of the, the main things people think of when they think of the Industrial Revolution is the factories. It really changed our way of life, the way we schedule ourselves, uh, our family units, um, the way we budget time. And there was a whole lot of resistance to, the, to this, um, Most of our listeners have probably heard of the Luddites and other groups that really resisted this this way of doing things. For one thing, it was greatly exploited by the rich. So even people that weren't opposed to the machines themselves were opposed to the class hierarchy, this haves and have-nots, which is a concern in transhumanism about the future, how this will affect the haves and have-nots. One of the reasons they're concerned is because rightly so. They look back at the beginning of the machines, and right away the machines greatly put a wedge between the haves and have-nots. Um, just open doors for exploitation that were already there, but it was a new tool that really, uh, let's say, injected steroids into the situation. So we've got the factories, uh, 1760 to 1840, the Industrial Revolution. In 1804, right in the middle of this Industrial Revolution, a significant invention was the train. The train was invented um, in South Wales. So we create this big beast of a machine, and this train changed the way we live. It changed the world. It changed the way we ship goods. It made cities, bigger cities possible. Um, It became a reason in itself for colonization. It became a reason by itself, even if people don't want to live on indigenous land, to try to get the people out of the way just so we can employ all these people to build these train tracks. Again, usually exploited people, people who uh, often paid with their lives to blast through mountains, to change the landscape, uh, to move heaven and earth, to create these these train tracks, these routes for these trains. People got inordinately rich like Vanderbilt off the new train, the booming train business. And here are these machines, and suddenly we're relying on this new machine to move us around, Um, Suddenly people like imagine what it's like to go out west you're on the east coast here in the United States now there's this train and what took months now takes days weeks um, greatly changed the way we live and one way to think of a train is we built a big machine exoskeleton around us that can move on these tracks that can go much faster we've enhanced our biological limitation Um, You might even say like the horse and wagon is somewhat involved in that. But again, I make the argument, I think the machines step us into another thing because the machines always have to improve, whereas things like primitive technology, simple things that you can do yourself, you can understand how to make your own wagon, how to raise your own horses, it still keeps us connected and doesn't fill us with this discontent. But there's something about these machines that... Is out of the hands of the individual that actually impedes freedom. You can't control it. We're starting to get these inventions that are out of our control.
1: Oh, it's interesting that uh, I just this popped up into my head that what we make is is kind of inherently flawed. Um, I'm not really, you know, super into religion or anything, but it's like man-made things, like we are the creator of these things. And because we are creating them as intelligent beings as we are, um, they're inherently flawed in ways, you know, even when you invent them, you might not realize, but a a few days, weeks, years, centuries down the road, you're discontent because you feel like you could do better. Um, So, yeah, like that discontent you were talking about also in the the first episode. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And so we've got these machines that are changing the way we inhabit and uh, relate to the space and the land around us. And in 1844, um, we have the first telegraph. So right at the end of what's considered the official uh, Industrial Revolution, four years after that, the telegraph. Now, the telegraph, you know, keep in mind, a big thing transhumanists will say is we believe in using technological ability to transcend our biological limitations. Um all these things fit in that category.
1: I was just going to say, I can't yell to my mom that's across the country. That's a biological limitation.
0: Exactly. The the telegraph was, you might say, small scale compared to what we have now because people would tend to have to like go to the local post office and get somebody to send them a message. But it begins to change the way we communicate with each other. The way we as individual humans communicate, share thoughts, talk, Is very much a part of what we are. You know, the question arises and will come up again and again as we explore this what does it mean to be a human? What do we even mean by that? And when we change the way we communicate, when you can send a message down a wire and uh, have somebody to receive it, that's much different than talking. We even, uh, in our last episode, talked how writing was part of the way, way it changed we use our memory. Um, so we, we have the beginning of a way that we're changing the way we communicate, and this was greatly uh, added to in 1876, just about 25 years later, with the first telephone. The first telephone is born, and so now, basically, we've created this bionic larynx and ear. My ear can't hear, as Teresa says. You know, her mom lives in Utah. Her ear cannot hear her mom, no matter how loud she yells, and. Her mom's larynx, her voice box, cannot amplify her voice nearly enough to be heard and to communicate between North Carolina and Utah. But with this bionic extension, we have exceeded the biological limitation. And now we have a reason to start running wires along with the telegraph. We're starting to wire the earth, we're running cables and wires. It's literally like we're weaving this web, this web that was soon to trap us. And so, We're wrapping the earth in train tracks and wires, and it's changing the way we move, and it's changing the way we communicate. And uh, Like I said, I want to move fast, but take some time to think about the implications of that, how you would move and how you'd communicate if you got rid of all the external uh, technologies that enhance your biological limitations. Three short years after the first telephone, we've got electricity. Thomas Edison, the light bulb. Now we've got a really big reason to amplify these wires, these cables. The spider web has really started. The grid. People talk about, oh, I'm going to go off grid. What they're talking about is getting away from electricity. The grid has descended on us. The grid that we talk about getting away from when we say off grid was born in 1879. Like all these things back then, it's getting a slow start. 1879 wasn't when the whole United States got wired. Um Electricity was a novelty. It would kind of blink on and off a lot of times. The White House, I remember when we were studying presidents, I can't remember which one, but it was kind of a big deal that the White House was one of the first buildings to get wired with electricity. Um, electricity was so important in the human experience and how we think of what we are that we could not conceive of being the creature we were anymore before Electricity. But what I mean by that is the discussion is no more can we do without electricity. That discussion is never discussed seriously at any important government uh, meeting, no matter what the cost. And the cost has always been great. Electricity has always come with a great, great cost to the land around us. Always. And it still does. Electricity. We've harnessed the power of lightning, but it doesn't come easy. To work this magic, to work this science takes great machines, great exploitation, and the discussion now is how to provide this electricity to us. That's the debate. Never should we have it. Never do we need it. Never might we be able to live happy lives without it as we did before, but how do we best provide electricity? This is the point where I think a lot of people think of when they say we can't go back. I think what they're really thinking of without maybe articulating it to themselves Is the birth of the grid, electricity. 1886, um, I guess that would be seven years later, is the first automobile. Again, when I say 1886, that's not when everybody's driving around. That's the beginning. That's when the automobile is beginning to be unleashed upon us. This is considered by many people to be, I've heard it called the second industrial revolution. This is one of the most important things that happened in our development. It changed the world. If the train was a machine that we would wrap around us to enhance our speed and strength. It was something that we kind of had to get together as a group, sort of like the telegraph was. You had to go to the post office, get help. You don't just jump on your own train you know, and head out. There's not much control. But the automobile, suddenly you have your own machine to crawl into, and you can move faster than any human, and you're stronger than any human. You can ship uh, a mass load of firewood in your vehicle that you can't carry. Um, this was a great enhancement to the human animal. And the automobile changed everything. The train is such an important invention, we still have trains. This 200-year-old invention still is chugging along. We still see the, the use of trains. But the automobile quickly had a parallel path to it. Now we have trucks. They're also shipping the way we move things back and forth, the way we move ourselves. Now we can spread out we exist in space completely differently since the automobile it's not like just getting your horse you know hitched up and going to the local general store now people travel all over the country and because of the telephone they have the Simulation of connection. I don't care what anybody says. It's nice to hear your mom's voice when she's halfway across the country. It's better than not hearing from her. But I'll be damned if that's the same thing as living beside your mom and sitting down with a, a cup of tea and looking her in the eyes and talking. And I'm not trying to pick on Teresa here, but all of our families, we've had some measure of this. It's because these machines give us abilities, but with that ability comes an artificiality, a simulation. Now instead of the real thing, we're relying on a crutch, a little gadget. A gadget that by the way we can't control and we can't make for ourselves.
1: And all this technology is picking away at our community, our villages, our our tightly woven web, as Gumby was saying, that it was like weaving a web throughout the country. It's like you started um with little patches here and there of weaving, but then somebody decided to go really far away from the middle and like start weaving things on the outer edge. And then you had to find technology to connect them. Um, and as we got more and more individualized with our communication and our um, abilities to move around, you know, I was just thinking about the train that's uh, like public transportation, you know, and then a car is so much more individualized. You can leave whenever you want. You can come back whenever you want. You can go wherever you want. You don't have to go to the train station. So it's it's changing the way that we interact with each other.
0: And if the train was a reason to start changing the landscape to lay down the train tracks, go outside, take a drive around your neighborhood, and notice how many roads there are compared to train tracks, the vehicle, the automobile, became a huge reason to start paving the earth, covering the earth with concrete. Um, It was so important to us that we were willing to do away with a lot of things, a lot of natural, pristine areas that were... Beautiful places, beautiful places to get away from all the wires that were starting to wrap us, all the the electricity that was being flooded into our lives, the factories, the smog, the smoke that was polluting these natural places. Now we're chopping them up with roads because it's that important. Who the hell wants to walk anymore? What kind of idiot just walks on their feet? You must be poor. You must have done something wrong. Get a car. Um, And something I wanted to say in the beginning is I'm not trying to pose any of this as if I'm an expert. Um, we're exploring a theory here. We're kind of making this up as we go. We're putting together pieces and we're trying them out. We're trying to see where it leads. So as I'm saying that, I acknowledge I am skipping over a lot of important uh, technologies, a lot of important things that... Um, I just kind of brainstorm things that jumped out to me like, man, all right, I think that changed things. Let's find out where that started. I'm going to close out the 1800s with 1895. This is when the first radio was invented. Now, let's take a moment and take stock of where we are here. This is – let's see my math. 60. This is 55 years after the end of the Industrial Revolution. People are now beginning to live lives where you go to a factory, you clock in. There's machines that make the work of uh, 20 people able to be done by one person pulling a crank, pushing a button. But there's signs everywhere that this does not make people happy. It makes certain individuals inordinately rich, but the mass of people that have to work at these factories live brutish, nasty, short lives, as Tom Hobbs liked to say. Dirty people, exploited people, diseased people, unhappy people, people that were so unhappy they were organizing, and there was revolt after revolt after revolt, especially during the Gilded Age after the – what we call the Civil War, the War of Northern Aggression. Um, This was not serving people, and these lives – now there's electricity, electricity coming into your home, and for all the things you might think electricity brings to you, people are quickly leaving behind the skills they had when they didn't need electricity. Now these skills took a little bit more work. You can't say that uh, I'm not gonna pretend that it's not more work to start a fire to cook than it is to turn on a stove, an electric powered stove. But I will say that it gives me more freedom because about anywhere I go, even if I have to struggle for it, even if I have to wait a day or two for the rain to clear, I can make my own fire. But once I get addicted to that that electricity and let those skills go, I can't. I need the electricity. So if you're providing the electricity, I need to kind of do what you say. Here's the telephone allowing us to throw our voices back and forth between each other. Um, There's this machine between the way we communicate. There's the trains. There's the automobiles. It's changing the way we move on the landscape. We've become animals that will crawl into machines as extensions of our own bodies to enhance our speed and strength. And now the radio. Now we are actually buying and wanting this little machine to put in our house, not that enables you to talk to your family member, but enables them, the powers that be, the people that run the radio stations, to talk to us. We have actually, to me, the radio, more than a communication enhancement, more than a bionic ear or a bionic larynx, it was one of the first cognitive tools and it was understood right away as a tool of propaganda. The propaganda got more sophisticated, but as early as World War I, when we started having issues with the Germans, it was understood. Um, what you broadcast through the radio, how much you limit the radio, how where the news comes from, the news is being told as the people want it told through your radio. And music is being brought to you. Now music has completely beginning to change in 1895. Music was always something that you had to be in the presence of somebody. You had to go to the music. You had to see someone's talent. Maybe it was something on your front porch. Maybe it was an event in town. Now you can just sit by yourself, isolated, and listen to this music that's been obliterated, sent through the radio waves, these invisible radio waves like magic, And comes into your house and comes out of a box and doesn't have as much to do with the human anymore. You don't see people anymore. You hear music. A simulated experience. And just when they deliver the news to you, however they want it told, and let's keep in mind the people that immediately start having the power and money to fund who tells the news, it comes in through the radio, you hear it, and then let's cut back to the relaxing music. To me, this is the beginning of the the mental hypnosis that uh, basically permeates our lives now. But that was the first machine brought in where it would tell us what to do, what to think. In 1906 – oh boy, Russian name – Nikolai Fyodorov establishes Russian cosmism. This is considered the precursor to transhumanism. It was a spirituality – And among the things that it espouses, the spirituality that they want to push for, is they strive for physical immortality. This Russian cosmism talks about right here in your physical body, there are ways if we keep following the science, this exploitation and manipulation of power that you don't have to die. You can live forever. You can cheat the gods. You can make your turn last forever. You never have to give it up. Russian Cosmism talks about resurrecting the dead, that one day even the people that have died, we can bring them back.
1: Oh my god.
0: And it also talks about Ugh. space exploration. Look up there in the stars. This is 1906. People, Some people still thought the moon was fucking made of cheese. But if we can make vehicles that we can wrap ourselves in and travel across the landscape in ways that the human animal never moved before— why can't we invent a vehicle that could travel to those stars one day? All this was part of Russian cosmism, and you might applaud the imagination. I applaud the imagination. You know, just um, the the thinking of the possibilities. It's the ambition, the hubris that I find dangerous. And uh, it was already in our society. It wasn't like Russian cosmism had a uh, what would I say, a monopoly on this. It's already the way people were thinking, the mainstream people, except even as now, the the quacks, you know, that might question. But even the quacks are getting sucked in. Um, I was talking to a couple people on Facebook, and, you know, they were saying how bad transhumanism was and everything. And I was like, but look at us. Even as we bitch about the technology, aren't we trying to transcend our biological limitation by communicating with these devices Aren't we, in a way, validating the idea that our own voices aren't good enough anymore? We need to transcend this human experience? It's insidious. And the framing of it has been seen by certain people. I applaud the early transhumanists because they did see the truth. I differ with them because I don't agree with where they want to go with it. By seeing the truth, I feel like we should have recognized the danger. They see the truth and feel like, let's see where we can go.
1: and um, making it relevant to today's times with all the uh, pandemic stuff and the isolation and social distancing and Zoom calls. It is, as Gumby said, it's not the same to be speaking with someone across the country or across the world on a computer screen um, as it is being in the same room, but it's quickly becoming forgotten, a forgotten, I'm not even... It's not an art. I mean, I think it's something that is absolutely necessary to our humanity, but it's quickly being erased.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you remember that 1927 movie that we watched together, Metropolis?
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Now, those old black and white silent movies can be kind of hard to watch because we've gotten so used to watching movies in a different way that they can, I don't know, they're just too alien to us now. We're not impressed that this movie is being able to be made like the people were when it came out. We're more kind of bored that it's such uh, rudimentary technology. But I would encourage you to give 1920, the Metropolis, made in 1927, a try. Um, it is one of the most entertaining early movies, and it's interesting that this early movie, it was one of the first black-and-white silent movies, um, not the first one, but one of them, one of the early ones, and it was a warning against technology against the fruits of the industrial revolution it was always already it was it was about these people that were working underground serving machines and what you see is people just doing arbitrary stuff there's this all visual i always remember of the guy working this clock you don't know what the hell he's doing but he's standing in front of this clock with all these dials and just working his ass off moving the arms back and forth back and forth it just seems so arbitrary it's just people slaving to the machines while the rich people are up in their skyscrapers above ground um it's about the haves and the have-nots, the class division, and the way the machines are such a huge part of that. And the people rise up and they fight the machines. Um, is there anything you remember about that movie that you want to to share?
1: Well, that was the main thing I was thinking of was the, uh, the clock movement, yeah.
0: Oh, and another important part is there was this woman that would go down there oh. and she would take <laughs> care of the poor. She was like... Almost like a saint, she was really so kind and sweet trying to help all the people that were struggling working with the machines and it would just show them like their shoulders hunched, getting off of work, just dead inside, empty people, and she's trying to uh, cater to them, help them. Well, the forces that be end up replacing her with a robot. So here we have, like, even in 1927, the idea that you can have a robot that's such a a simulation that people can't recognize the robot. And she's this evil robot. She does this awesome dance that is – I mean the dance itself is worth watching. This robot does this seductive dance, and it's so bizarre because on the one hand it's, like, really corny. (laughs) It's these weird movements, but it is kind of seductive in some kind of weird, like, way. Um, that really struck me how we already have, like, I guess you could call that AI.
1: Yeah. And it's easy to dismiss things from the past because that's what the message is. That's fed to us all the time. That the past, um, was just full of people that were ignorant and, um, you know, we know so much more now, but that's not true. There's always been smart people. So, um, yeah, definitely recommend
0: watching that movie. In 1927, when Metropolis came out, was it a German movie? Uh,
1: I th- think there. It might have been because there was like one remaining copy left and there was like a fire and they had to like splice it back together with a German version. And then there was like another version, like in um, South America, like Argentina. But I think it was because people fled Germany and they came to Argentina or something. I can't remember.
0: Yeah, 1927. I think it was German. I could be wrong about that, but that's really interesting when you think about what German's about to be involved in, Germany, Um, that there was people that were interested in questioning, like, are these machines good for us? Is this the way we want to live? And that was the same year, 1927, when the television set was born. My God, if the radio was a propaganda tool... um, And I remember when I was studying President Hoover, you know, among other leaders at the time, they were really – it was important for them, for the government to get control over the radio. They understood what this was. They understood the power of the radio. Now the television set. Now 1927, it was a couple decades before the average person was having television sets, but it was beginning to be built and used. And if there has ever been a profound propaganda tool – It is the television set. I heard a story. I want to say it was told by uh, Binky on the Propaganda Report.
1: Brad Binkley. Brad
0: Binkley. (laughs) Binkley. Yeah, we always call him Binky, so I get that confused. Binky. But he talked about – he had a friend that said, um, yeah, I knew this guy that worked for the CIA, and um, he would never talk about the work he did. He would only say one thing, and it was this, never watch television. And I've thought about that ever since. That's one of those things that stayed with me. Like, isn't it interesting somebody, I mean, listen to our episode ABCs of CIA, if you're not familiar with what the CIA has been into, that's into all this stuff. And the one thing he wants to warn people about, he's like, all right, I'll tell you this, don't watch TV.
1: Do you think about that when you're watching television?
0: I do. (laughs) Yeah, I do. And when I look for it, it's easy to see. It's easy to see in every, I love South Park, but I can see, even see it in South Park. The propaganda, the tools. Even as I'm laughing, even as I feel like, oh, look at them questioning stuff, I see the way that I'm still playing the wrong game as I'm watching the show. Um, Can I jump in here? Please.
1: Something that's, um, I've been sitting back and it's kind of been gnawing at me are the dates and years of when these inventions are, because Gumby asked me the other day, like, when do you think such and such was invented? Like, what's your best guess? And... Uh, I would always guess maybe like 10, 20 years, maybe even further um, away from what his date was. And it's kind of annoying because it's like, ah, that's that doesn't even seem possible. But it is. And if you think about the implications of that, the general public is given the technology only after, <laughs> well, except for... Um, MRNA shots um, Only after you know the, the scientists have been messing around with it For decades Then it's like okay now you know we'll roll it out To consumers but it's like They have technology and we're Always what 20 years Behind getting it
0: yeah, I believe I heard Monica Perez Also of the propaganda report Say that you can just assume that wherever you think We are with technology assume that the Government that the people that are working on this Are at least 10 years ahead And uh, I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Um, Four years after the first television, Metropolis, came out. In 1931, Neil R. Jones wrote The Jameson Satellite, which was a short story. And the short story is significant because it introduces cryonic ideas, the ideas that people could be frozen and brought back to life, this Russian cosmism. It's uh, now... Through science, they're starting, beginning to conceive of a way this could be done, resurrecting the dead. Now, a a person that believes in this cryonic freezing might not see it so much in these morbid terms of resurrecting the dead. They might see it as just like reanimating the body or – I don't know. There's all kinds of ways we skirt around the horror of what we're experimenting with and what we're doing. But 19… 31 that was the beginning of the uh, cryonic idea which plays a very important part in transhumanism thinking and in 1945 this was 14 years after the the ideas of cryonics were born we've got the first a bomb now through our machines through our our desire for power our fear to protect ourselves from the other people who desire power the war of the machines um We've developed a weapon so awful, we've actually like we've, – we've harnessed lightning through wires to feed into our homes, to power machines. We've harnessed invisible impulses that we still don't really understand the effects it have on us that go through the air, these radio waves. And now we've split the fucking atom, one of the building blocks of not just life, of existence, of matter itself. We've created a bomb that was set off in a, at the Trinity site in New Mexico in 1945. I, th- I believe that was the first successful test of a nuclear bomb, and this is unleashed on the world. And we all know the decades that follow, 1945, and the ways it was used, um, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, and the fear fear for decades as now Russia gets the bomb. We got the bomb because Germany might have the bomb. We had to protect ourselves because if they're going to have a, a bomb of an insane person that would use such a thing, we need that weapon. And when we find that we have the monopoly on the weapon, we immediately use it. We're the only country that's had it and used it against someone. Now Russia has the bomb. They need to defend themselves. The nuclear arsenal becomes another part of the human animal, the human existence.
1: All right, I'm sitting over here um, with nervous, sweaty hands, (laughs) because I want to do this justice. Um, This is a thread of the the tangled web that we have woven that I, I dared to pull. On our list, uh, we make a list of kind of like brainstormed ideas of what we want to look at when we explore a topic. And one of the things that I had written down was a list of transhumanists. And lo and behold, Wikipedia, that um, (laughs) ever-reliable tool of the CIA, um, has a list of transhumanists that you can easily click on and learn more about. Now, I started... At the A's, and I'm not going to go through all of these, but I got to this guy. In um, his name is Henri Atlan or something. He's a French um, philosopher of biology, biophysicist. I love the
0: name Henri.
1: Henri. It's so fun to say. Henry. Um, and in his Wikipedia profile, so I went from list of transhumanists. I clicked on this, you know, in the A's, Henri Atlan. Um, And it said that he was also involved in cybernetics. Now, never mind about what cybernetics is exactly. I wrote down it's the precursor to computing, AI, robotics, cognitive, um, and complexity sciences. Just never mind about that for a second. But cybernetics were discussed at something that's called the Macy Conferences that happened in the 1940s. The Macy Conferences, not Macy's, the department store by the way, um, were preceded by something called the Cerebral Inhibition Meetings that happened in May of 1942. At these meetings were a mixture of um, experts in a variety of disciplines, whether they were physicians, whether they were studying um, quantum physics. Uh, whether they were anthropologists like Margaret Mead and her husband, oh, George, no, Gregory Bateson. Now, why would there be anthropologists there? Um, again, God, this is like, oof, this is such a complex thing. I'm, I'm doing my best here. So there were a bunch of really intelligent minds. Intellectually intelligent minds at this meeting. You could almost say it was like a uh, a think tank, like a meeting of all these minds to discuss what they're working on and to try to come together and like learn from each other. So at this cerebral inhibition meeting in May of 1942, there were two topics on the agenda. One was hypnotism, and the other was conditioned reflex. Both. Um, presented by psychiatrists and psychologists. I found that interesting because, um, huh, why do you need to have that discussed?
0: Remind (laughs) me again what year this was?
1: 1942. All right. Like I said, attendees of the um, Macy's conferences included well-known anthropologist Margaret Mead, and her husband, Gregory Bateson, both of which served in the Office of Strategic Services or the OSS in World War II. Again, what the hell are anthropologists doing? What are they doing?
0: And the OSS is the precursor to the CIA, right? That's correct.
1: So they're in Papua New Guinea studying the cultures and coming up with these theories of how humans interact because just like a fish that's in water can't see the water. A lot of times, um, these, you know, heady philosopher thinker types, they're trying to figure out the inner workings of our species. Like what really makes us tick? If you observe a conversation, like, can you predict things? Can you manipulate things? And so both, uh, Margaret Mead and her husband, um, worked, uh, at the OSS, and they were helping to um, create propaganda in, I believe it was Southeast Asia at the time, and it was probably uh, probably geared at like a smear campaign for Japan or something, but what does this have to do with transhumanism, right? Good Lord. So if you think about, this was a list of transhumanists that I just pulled the thread, and Transhumanists um, come from all different disciplines. They can be music producers, they can be politicians, they can be um, super rich people that are giving millions and millions of dollars to research on cryogenics and like uh, how to stop the aging process for good, like so we don't ever get old or have any ailments. Um, so these folks were kind of coming together. In the 1940s, and starting to form these uh, really complex webs of information theories. Um, how do we get like, how do we get our computer systems to uh, do what we want, and how do we get people? How like, how do we manipulate people? And I don't know if that <laughs> really explained all of it, but
0: do they say much about like? Their whys? Like, what's the premise of why they want to manipulate people? Is it to deal with uh, civil unrest? Or? Well, like
1: any good um, kind of secret or or selective organization. They don't really say, like, we're meeting to manipulate people. But it's just interesting that along with those two topics of hypnotism and uh, conditioned reflex, they're listening to anthropologists talk about theories such as schismogenesis. Mm -hmm. Um, It literally means creation of division. And there is documented use by the United States Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA, of using what these anthropologists, what these other minds have learned, have observed, and have begun to really um, formulate ideas around this schismogenesis, if I'm saying it right, it keeps us apart. It polarizes us. Um, it gave examples of uh, China and Russia use social media strategies that are rooted in this schismogenesis against the United States. Um
0: us Russia- apart? Wow, you can kind of still see, like, that's the accusation leveled against both China and Russia now with interfering with our elections, supposedly with, like, you know, affecting Facebook posts, like, depending on what side you believe, uh, the false information that they're feeding us. You're saying this schismogenesis is sort of the study of division. Yeah. Of fracturing people. Yeah. So, yeah, you still see that, like, fully in swing now. And... You know, I don't want to pick on China and Russia. My God, we are, of course. like, of course leading the charge with this stuff.
1: Yeah, we, um, we used it, uh, like I mentioned, during World War II, we used it against Japanese-held territories in the Pacific. So, again, trying to make a smear campaign against Japan in that area of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're reminding me of so many of the CIA operations we covered.
1: Yeah, and there was this article... Again, I'm I'm pulling the thread, you know, it's coming a little undone and frayed, but I just have to mention this. There was this New York Times article that uh, it was printed in 1977. So what's that? 40-something years ago, right? Mm, math. Yeah. Um, that said that there was money, funds that were channeled From the CIA through the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation, the Macy conferences and the Macy Foundation—it's—it's the same people. Um, (laughs) I don't even know. Like, this is why I'm so nervous. So there's CIA money that's being funneled through this kind of... I mean, it's a real foundation. It still exists, the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation. Um, but the CIA used it to get money um, to kind of help pay for these great minds to get together and synthesize their ideas so that they could be used by the CIA. Um at the time, the the foundation uh, director, Dr. John Bowers, said that there was no indication that the foundation had been a conduit for CIA funding. But in a deposition by Dr. Harold Abramson, a prominent New York pediatrician, he wrote that his LSD research with the CIA was funded by the Macy Foundation. So, I mean, who are you going to believe? Um, if you remember... Dr. H- Dr. Harold Abramson's name, he was the guy that, Cody uh, fingers, treated um, Dr. Frank Olson, who committed suicide oh,
0: yeah.
1: after the CIA MK gave Ultra. him LSD. So there's like all of these things that are all interrelated, and I'm not trying to sound like a kooky nut here, but it just brought my attention more to how the CIA has not just been involved with the technologies, um, AI, whatever cybernetics, um, since like the 1990s with Incutel. They've been involved since before the CIA was even formed, with the OSS.
0: Is that all you've got on that?
1: I think so. I'm probably not doing it justice, but I highly recommend looking for that list of transhumanists and seeing what you find, what threads you pull. And the Macy conferences is also another good place to like Google that and check out any uh, attendees, any thoughts that were brought up, any connections that you might be
0: able to make. Yeah, I have no doubt that the CIA and the transhumanist movement has a lot of overlap in the uh, interest in advancing technology. The question is how much they overlap in philosophy, Um, the whole human experience, how we see what we are and where we should go. Um, And thank you for uh, bringing that, because what we're doing right now with the timeline is we're giving you a bunch of pieces, and some of them are going to seem like ill-fitting pieces. Um, But when we start getting into more recent times, we hope to bring it all together for you. to to show you how all these roads were not just random, accidental, parallel roads. They were all different views, different aspects of the same trajectory. Um, I'll move into the 1950s. We've got the first military drones. You know, in the 1950s, the military is experimenting with how to make flying aircraft that are unmanned. Now, we've got these atom bombs. You know, in theory, they could drop an atom bomb or any other kind of missile. But uh, as early as the 1950s, we are trying to figure out ways to get the machines to fight our wars for us where we're not even on the battlefield. Um, in 1954, Jerry Soule wrote The Altered Ego, and it introduced for the first time the idea of what was going to become post-humanism. He didn't use the word, I don't believe, but it was the idea of uploading your mind into a computer. As early as 1954, he was beginning to explore the possibility, which raises all kinds of existential questions. We just watched the movie Transcendence last night, um, which, Jesus Christ, if you want a primer on transhumanist ideas, it it (laughs) covers so much. But it asked the question, you know, I asked Teresa This character played by Johnny Depp uploaded his mind, the body died, he was cremated, then his mind was in the computer, and the question was brought up in the movie, is this him? That is the question. If you have your mind uploaded to a computer, do you live in the computer, or have you just made a simulation of yourself that has nothing to do with you? Whatever happens, whatever death is, you still die. The simulation is no more you than if somebody just created a robot that looked like you. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter how close it comes to you. Don't you change? So like in 20 years, you're going to think different. You might have tried a different job or something. So what is a simulation? It's not you. It brings some really deep questions. Um, Is this how we escape uh, mortality by downloading our minds into computers? To me, that's nonsense. You you can't download yourself into a computer. I believe you are your body, your life. You're you're the things around you. You're the events that happen to you. Um, You can make a program that more and more effectively mimics you. Look like you had something to say, Teresa?
1: I was just going to say it's a really interesting movie. I'm I'm glad that I uh, spent the couple dollars to watch it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And the 50s, of course, the golden age, as we mentioned last episode, you know, that television, that handy propaganda tool is now getting in everybody's home. The automobile is just everywhere getting stylized, you know, car culture. Um, The Cold War, you know, this great invention to protect us has now got everybody all over the globe scared. It seems like World War III is inevitable. And back then, World War III was pictured as dropping atom bombs, just destroying our culture, um, which – Looking back from what we've learned now, I suspect had a lot more propaganda in it than I ever realized because I feel like the underlying idea of the fear of the Cold War is what if we had a responsible party, a neutral party, a completely logical party, not prone to mistakes to control us? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that make you feel safer? <laughs> 1950s was also the time when people were really beginning c- to consider not just AI but the technological singularity, that he, this superintelligence would uh, someday, maybe soon, um, reach a point where it does take over. In 1959, Richard Feynman, who I've quoted before in other episodes, I like a lot of what he says about different topics, um, but this bastard worked on the Manhattan Project. He was one of the people that brought us the nuclear bomb. In 1959, this was 14 years after the bomb. It's already been used to kill, what, thousands of people, millions of people? I don't know the number. A lot of people, two uh, Japanese cities, um, full swing of the Cold War. The whole country is gripped with terror. Um, It it seems pretty likely that somebody's going to decide to use one of these damn things again, and now other people have them to retaliate, um, that it could obliterate human life maybe all life on earth. Um, they're beginning to understand the radiation, the things they didn't foresee. When they first blew up that atom bomb, some scientists didn't know what the effect would be. You're blowing up atoms. You're splitting atoms to release huge amounts of energy. Some people even thought it was possible it would create a chain reaction. This bomb would swallow the earth, burn up the oxygen of the earth. So that, in 1945, they took a great risk in testing this thing. So here's Richard Feynman. People have got cancer, you know. His invention has done all kinds of untold things. But these fucking nerds, you know, these nerds, he's just so enchanted by what he can do. I don't think it's really like, I would feel, it seems to me I would be humbled. I would be like, oh my God, what have I done? Um, (laughs) I'd be living in a cabin somewhere, you know, to like rethinking my life. Not Richard Feynman. Now he's given a lecture in 1959 Um, and this lecture promotes ideas that later inspired the field of nanotechnology. Oh, yeah. Now he's trying to figure out ways to make robots so fucking small that they could infect bodies, infect the water cycle, infect the ground, infect the clouds, machines everywhere. And what could go wrong with that? The atom bomb went so fucking well. So Richard Feynman, yeah, not a lot of love for that guy right now. Um... Let me see what you have next. Oh, I'm going to 1963.
1: Okay, well, let me just jump in there real quick because you mentioned nanotechnology. Um, There is a term that another transhumanist that was on the list, K. Eric Drexler, came up with. Now, he did not come up with it in the 60s, but I just wanted to to bring this up because you said, like, what could go wrong? He um, coined the term and the concept of gray goo. G-O-O. What is gray goo? It is a theoretical global catastrophic scenario involving mon- molecular nanotechnology. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this. In which out-of-control, self-replicating machines consume all biomass on Earth while building more of themselves. It sounds like we already have that. They're called humans. Um and specifically, this scenario is referred to as eco which eco-phage,
0: which... Phage means eating, right? Yeah,
1: which it translates to eating the environment. And it reminded me of the term wetico, where there's this cannibalistic uh, spirit, which is interesting, you know, like reflecting back on what people in the past, they're not stupid. I'm not saying that uh, they... Would predict this, but um, but yeah, it's it's just like the concept of something spinning out of control and just gobbling up everything.
0: Yeah, I watched a show one time that explored different scenarios of ways the world could end, and one of them was nanotechnology. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think maybe that's where I heard the the gray goo idea. But one of the things that got brought up is all it would take is one person that understands the technology, a hacker, that becomes disenchanted with the government, with the way things are going, the way this technology is being used, to steer it in another direction. There's no way for this technology – I mean, look at the technology we have. There's no security in it. You know, people getting hacked all the time. We're getting, you know, all kinds of, like, power grids going down. Things happen. They always do. And they're always sold in such a way as if they won't. Like, we make the same damn mistake over and over. We pretend like things are safe that we should know are not safe. Same with this nanotechnology, and they were saying all it takes is one guy to change what this stuff is used for, and uh, yeah, like you're saying, the ecophagia, right?
1: Ecophagia or phagy?
0: Yeah, Yeah, if it's used to clean up oil spills and everything, I mean, that could easily be turned to infect water supplies to do a lot of other things um, to be used as an ultimate terrorist tool. And by terrorists, you know, I'm not ruling out how the military would already use such a uh, tool. We know, I mean, hell, aren't we in the middle of a pep uh, a pandemic, <laughs> a pandemic because of a weaponized virus? We already know any kind of technology is going to be explored for military uh, uses. So in 1963, you know, the, this merging of man and machine is. Um, being promoted, being sold to us in the form of a Marvel comic book character. 1963 is when Iron Man came out. Ooh. Tony Stark, um, rich playboy, cause America loves their rich people. He goes to Vietnam. He gets in an accident and now he's kept alive through machines that are attached to his heart. And he wraps a robot body around himself. And, uh, of course does all kinds of good for the world. Namely, he protects his own company. That's one of the things when I was reading in the eighties, I started getting into Iron Man and, uh, it always occurred to me, like, most of the time, he's just kind of protecting Stark Industries.
1: <laughs>
0: you know? so. But, Never mind that. But kids are being raised with that, you know? Like, I thought it would be so cool to fucking have a robot suit. And what we're talking about is technology used for biological enhancement. Um, in 1964, a year after Iron Man, Robert Ettinger wrote the Manifesto for Cryonics. It was called The Prospect of Immortality. And this so much inspired the people that were interested in this idea of freezing yourself and being resurrected from the dead that little cryonic societies began popping up, little groups of people. um, We can assume there were people with money, with power that were getting together and like, all right, all right, you've sold it to me. You've told me enough science. I think even if we're not there yet, we can make this happen. We can beat death. The insanity of that, the hubris of that just drives me crazy. Like death is something to be conquered. Death is part of who we've always been. What a strange way of looking at our lives, that our lives are full of math problems that need to be solved instead of understood and accepted, that maybe that's a part of what life is. We don't even understand what life is, and we're trying to cheat it and make it into something it never was. It's such a bizarre Scary concept. And again, the fucking nerds! These are the kind of people that are so enchanted with what we can do and so get so disgusted with life that I feel like they throw their money and power into this kind of stuff. And maybe not just the nerds, but definitely people with power. Maybe people not smart enough to be considered nerds to actually add to the science, but who want to benefit from the science. But I don't see good people. I don't know, healthy, sane people being that interested in such a concept.
1: Yeah, it just occurred to me. Um, we, we listened to this podcast called Disaffected Josh Slocum. <laughs> and uh, he talks all the time about cluster B uh, personality disorders, one of which is narcissistic personality disorder. And I'm not saying that every scientific mind is a narcissist, but it's interesting that a lot of times, you know, we... We as a culture use the term, you know, introvert like kind of shy even though that's not exactly what it means, but um these scientific or engineering type minds there's something that happens or doesn't happen to them in their life. They're not quite sure how to interact, so they go inside and just like What's um, the name of that uh, story where uh, the person, like, looks at themselves, Narcissus, in the in the puddle? Narcissus, I think it is. Um, it's like they don't think about the implications of their actions on others. They just think about, ooh, how cool it would be if I could do this. Or, oh, maybe, you know, if I'm smart, maybe I'll have more power and I'll be able to just – influence people to like me. I don't have to actually be likable or, or be a good human being. Um, so it's just interesting that all these scientific minds are in, in every way molding our culture and their narcissistic mindset leads to narcissistic or narcissism inducing inventions And then we have a problem, an explosion of narcissistic personality disorder in our culture, and we wonder why.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and moving down our timeline, uh, as early as 1968, we've got uh, a movie I really love, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey, in which we meet HAL 9000. And uh, again, kind of the disquiet of uh, how much could an artificial intelligence really understand us? Um, How much would it choose its programming over any kind of like uh i don't know human interest and would that be a good or a bad thing hal is definitely one of the uh spookiest characters um in cinema you know the hello dave i mean just so calm and reassuring and boy wasn't this didn't this foresee like the voice that we hear with our gps's and everything now (laughs) um take a right at the next turn And one of the technologies that foresaw was the video phone. They didn't have that back in 1968, but that was in the movie. Um, And sure enough, we're about to run into that soon. And here's one of those pieces that I was saying we might have pieces that look like they don't really fit in what we're talking about right now. But we hope to bring it together um, with our research uh, after 2090s. And in 1969, the Summer of Love. Now, back then, homosexuality was still considered a mental illness. You could be actually committed um, if the right people had you know, reasons to try to get you committed simply for being homosexual. And we see a lot of homosexuality um, and transgenderism later pop up. In the leading minds of the technology of our times, Alan Turing is one that jumps out to me. The, the Turing machine was an early precursor of the computer used during World War II, um, a really sophisticated way of cracking codes. And it's a great example of what do you do with this kind of responsibility. There's a great movie, I can't remember the name of it, where uh, Alan Turing is played by Benedict Cumberbatch. And, uh,
1: <laughs> I think it's Cumberbatch. But Cumberbatch, maybe. whatever. Cucumber patch.
0: (laughs) Cucumber patch. I like that better. (laughs) But, you know, one of the things they had to figure out is if we start – we've cracked the code with this computer that they don't know we've invented. Um, If we use that to stop all of their missions, they're going to know right away and change the code. Mm. So how much much can we compute that we can just stop enough to affect the war – but let enough people die mm. that the Germans feel like their code is still successful and will still continue using the code that we have now cracked. I, f- I feel like that's a great example of the things that start opening to us as this technology um, comes to us. A war is not a simple thing, not that it ever was a good thing, but it's become so complicated that you have to, like, you know, one of the guys that was working on this apparently his brother was on one of these ships. He had to let his fucking brother die because of numbers, because of computations, because of long equations of how to win a war over empire, really creepy existential questions start coming up that I don't feel like we have any business having to struggle with because we certainly don't have any good answers for these questions. We've created situations that necessitate questions that we can't possibly have answers for. Um, But anyway, back to the Stonewall Riots. This is a big riot in New York City that um, transgender people credit with being the beginning of their transgender rights. Now we listen to Josh Slocum, who's a gay um, man, and he's very critical of the transgender movement. He separates, and we've we've actually run into other articles written by transgender or gay people that say, transgender is not what we are. These things should not be linked together. Um, It's not LGBT. The T is a whole separate thing. We have a sexual attraction to people of our own sex. That does not mean I think I'm something I'm not and I demand you think it too and you need to use the proper pronouns or you're going to crush me so much that I might commit suicide and I have the right that you think and speak the way that I feel comfortable with. And I need surgery to castrate, get myself castrated, to get a hole drilled in my body, to do all these different things to make a simulation to mimic something I'm not. That's much different than being a gay man or woman both the gay the homosexual um groups and the transgender groups see stonewall riots as being very important to the beginning of these rights
1: what was Um, the stonewall
0: riots the stonewall riots and i read about this first in howard zinn's book the people speak um it mainly involved drag queens against the cops and for all the details i don't have all the details and uh I really don't want to get too much into it right now, but it's really easy to find out more about this. But it was a big confrontation between police and drag queens. But one of the things that stood out to me that Howard Zinn just completely didn't acknowledge that I found really strange is in this book, you've got women fighting for their rights. You've got Native Americans fighting for their rights. You've got black people fighting for their rights, and you've got gay people fighting for their rights, but only one group threatens to rape people. These drag queens start yelling at the cops things like, I'm going to fucking rape you. How would you like me to rape you? It's the only group in this compilation of historical people fighting for their rights that weaponizes sex. And I find it significant and strange that among this group alone, it starts to become acceptable that they can say things like that. That it's like, oh, well, that's a good thing. I'm glad they stood up and fought for their rights. Yeah, you butt fuck those cops. You rape the, you 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 rape people against their will. You have sex with them whether they want you to or not. Yeah, yeah. I just find it really strange. To me, this isn't an argument that gay people should be oppressed. It's an argument that nobody has the right to say things like that. That is a violation. And I feel like this seed idea. Somehow that that was a little more okay for them to say it than, let's say, a black riot where the black people are yelling at white people like, we're going to rape you. No, they knew that would bring down their movement. They don't want to be seen as rapists. That was the argument of the white supremacists. Black people are fucking going to come in and rape your white women. Black people didn't want to pose themselves like that. That idea was an insidious, poisonous idea, and Stonewall later became the name of a group that's really behind transgender rights. But we're going to come back to that. I'm just going to put that on the shelf for now. It's in my timeline. 1970, just two years after 2001 Space Odyssey, we indeed have the first video call. And uh, of course, it's going to take a long time for that to catch on before the pandemic forces us all into Zoom calls, and now we're going to school on video, and basically, you know, when you interact with people just as often as you see them face-to-face, you're seeing them on video screen. But it began in 1970. And in 1973, three years after that, we have the Bionic Man TV show. An astronaut goes up into space. Comes down in a crash landing, and they build him back faster, stronger, better enhancement. Um, and he uses his powers for good. He's a handsome guy, Lee Majors, you know, and he's a superman, Bionic man, the million dollar man. So again, we're watching this propaganda on our television
1: mm-hmm.
0: our our TV programming. And um it's selling us this idea more and more about how cool would it be to be, Lee Majors, to have all this biological enhancements. What's the downside? Look at all the good he does. He's a hero. Oh,
1: before you move on. Yeah. I just want to mention another transhumanist that was on the list named George Church. In the 1970s, he was studying um, molecular engineering, genetics at Duke University. And he later moved to MIT. I think Duke kicked him out because he wasn't like... Actually attending classes. He was just really, really obsessed with being in the lab. Um, but he was studying what it says in the article, transfer RNA, which decodes DNA and carries instructions to other parts of the cell. Now, this is in the 1970s. Um
0: this is what's uh being used as the so-called vaccine now, right? That's the precursor to that research?
1: I I think so. I'm not a molecular, you know, whatever the hell he's doing, but it sounds like it could be close. He was also the inventor or co-inventor of something called nanopores, which is like uh, a nanotechnology filter that is or has um been I don't know, presented as being used in our water supply.
0: I want to inject something uh, before I forget it. because. Uh, you want to
1: inject something?
0: I do want to inject
1: something. My body, my choice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, stick it right in your ear. And um, this vaccine, I just got into a couple debates just this morning over the vaccine. And an argument that's coming up more and more is, I don't pretend to be a doctor. Um, you think I'm going to trust like MAGA hat wearing um, idiots or the experts with letters after their name? So the argument is something like, I don't understand the science. It's too complicated. I don't understand all this stinky talk. Um, I'm not a scientist. And they use that as an argument to trust the scientist. To me, it's an argument for just the opposite. If you don't understand it, that's a reason to beware. Look how much we're surrounded by problems caused by us messing with stuff we didn't understand the full implications of. Anyway.
1: Yeah, I just also wanted to... um Tag on to that that George Church is a member of a group called Rapid Deployment Vaccine Collaborative that formed early on in the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic um, and in the past, Dr. Church uh, was partly funded um, by the Jeffrey Epstein the Sixth Foundation. Um, and in the logs for the Epstein Foundation the the funds that were given to him were for quote cutting edge science and education so yeah he um he was definitely doing some shit there and uh who knows what all these connections with Jeffrey Epstein and transhumanists and um money all will lead to
0: yeah and uh Going back to the Bionic Man in 1973, one of the things that uh, it occurs to me is in a decade earlier, Iron Man, you're putting on a suit. You're you're somewhat connected to the machine. You're hidden within the machine, but you have your human autonomy or at least the illusion of it. The Bionic Man brings us closer to the merging of man and machine. Now you are the machine. The machine is your body. But luckily Lee Majors looks perfectly human. So when we see this person whose body is made of machine parts – We're actually seeing Lee Majors. He wasn't actually a bionic man.
1: Mm, So it
0: really helps humanize it for us. Like, oh, what a good looking guy. Look at that smile, man. Like he looks like an all-American kind of guy. Luckily, any of those like kind of machine parts that might kind of like weird us out, they're not showing. They're not even there. Hollywood magic. Um, That comes later to get us used to the idea of like, what if it doesn't look that pleasant? But we'll get to that. And that year, 1973, was also when the first cell phones came out. Motorola. They looked like a little cross between walkie-talkies and cell phones. Um, again, these, like, we talked about some of the words of the transhumanist uh, values. One of them was, oh, shit, do you remember that word about people who like new things? Neo- Neophile, I believe. Yeah, neophile. So some of the neophiles and techophiles, tech files, whatever are uh, getting these little cell phones. But again, it's a long time before that catches on, but they were available in 1973. And three years later, 1976, this was the year I was born. In 1976 is when Steve Jobs co-founds Apple and mm-hmm. ends up <laughs> screwing over what Steve Wozniak and some other guy and, you know, kind of takes over Apple later. But this was the year he co he co-founded it. It begins. Mm-hmm. And also in 1976 was when the chronics institute is established officially established where clients are now getting frozen in nitrogen awaiting the technology to catch up so they can be resurrected from the dead mm. uh i found it kind of interesting that these two things happen on the year i was born and next year 1977 to the public for the first time you can get a personal computer in your home the apple 2 um Again, 1977, it's a long time before this catches on and is is everyone's home, but it's slowly coming out, Um, which brings us to the 80s. We're almost caught up with our timeline from the former episode. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) A little bit of backtracking there. What I want to say about the 80s as far as I'm personally concerned is what I remember about the 80s is I loved computers. We were being sold computers, like I mentioned some of the TV shows in the 70s, even the 60s. Woo, the 80s. Now we have an official group of transhumanists, and they're starting to pull some strings here, and we are in love with the computer. The computer is starting to be in people's homes, these big, clumsy, personal computers. Some people have cell phones. Think of the implication of the cell phone. If the telephone was a bionic larynx and bionic ear, now you're never away from it. You're carrying. You are always connected. Anytime someone wants to talk to you from anywhere in the world that can get that number, ring, you pick it up. You're never away from it. And if you are away from it, it could mean that there's a problem. Who would unplug from the network? This grid is now not just electricity but communication. It's not just a way to exceed our human limitation. That spider web of wires has really wrapped around the human being. I even got a you know, I love computers so much in the eighties, I remember I got an award for this computer class I had to take where we were on one of those damn Apple computers and I was like, Ooh, look and I was a quick learner, so they were like, Ooh, he's gonna be a computer guy. And like many boys, I remember – and I thought I was the only one that did this at the time. I since heard stories that apparently other boys thought this was a good idea in the 80s. Anytime I found a junk pile or somebody's stereo was broken or something, I'd take those little microchip boards and stuff. had no idea what they were or what they were used for, but I put them in a box and thought that one day I'd make a, a robot with them. I just thought like, eh, you know, like I've seen so many shows. Like one day I'm just going to figure it out. Like it's going to click. I'm going to get old enough to be smart enough to build a robot. Um Which tells you something about growing up in the 80s, kind of the stuff we're being fed and how we're thinking. I had a little uh, toy called Robbie the Robot. It was a short little thing, and you could punch in buttons on his head. It looked like a calculator. And uh, you could program to do things like move forward three feet, turn around twice. He had a little tray. You could deliver a cup of coffee and impress everyone in the living room like, ooh, where'd the robot come from? Wow, look, he's got a cup of coffee. Now he's leaving the room. Wow. You know, and they always sold us those things and to kids in those commercials where it's like everybody's like, Ooh, look how clever Timmy is. Wow, Timmy just sent us this robot. Ooh, Timmy has impressed the room. Timmy <laughs> And we were all sold that shit, so Robbie the robot was definitely one of those toys. In nineteen eighty. We finally get a much-needed black character. Black people are not represented enough in the comic books and everything. So to help address this, they introduce a black superhero, which is great, much-needed. But, unfortunately, his name is Cyborg. He's the next extension of the Bionic Man. The Bionic Man, uh, seven years before that, was hidden. He, he, you couldn't see his machine parts. Cyborg is loud and proud, silver, machine parts, and half of his body covering half of his face. He's basically the Terminator after he's been in a really bad fight. Um, so Cyborg makes his first appearance in the DC universe, a merging of man and machine, human enhanced. He's not held back by those stupid human limitations. Now he can use the machine, and of course he does nothing but good with it.
1: <laughs>
0: um A year after that, 1981, we've got the first laptops. Hell, the fucking PCs are barely out. Now they've already figured out how to make little laptops, so you don't have to be away from your computer. There's not a whole lot of fun things you can do with your computer yet, but it's an extension of your mind. It is a cognitive enhancement. You can't remember stuff. You can't do this uh, complicated math. You've got a computer, and never be away from it. Now you can carry your phone and your big clunky laptop. And never be away from these devices. You're in constant communication with every woman, and oh, every woman, <laughs> if you're lucky. If you're Gumby. <laughs> every uh, one in a very unnatural way, an inhuman way. It's changing the way we relate to each other. It's changing the way we think through this computer we carry around. And we never had a need for it before. Let's keep in mind that this isn't addressing needs. It's inventing needs to sell us the product. Never forget that. Humans were doing fine, or at least as fine as we've ever been doing, before these inventions. They weren't addressing needs. They weren't addressing needs. That's my mantra. People always think science is helping us, addressing a need. It invents needs and then sells us the product. And this was the Osborne 1, the first laptop in 1981. Two years later, 1983, um, we've got Inspector Gadget. And keep in mind, the early 80s. The official transhumanists have um, met in L.A. They formed a group, and they are finding ways to advance all these technologies um, for their agendas, and we're going to see this come to pass really soon. Inspector Gadget, I spent a lot of time talking about Penny's computer book, but I forgot about Inspector Gadget himself, bionic man, man, (laughs) like – Go-go gadget whatever. You know, you got a small cock? Go-go gadget dick. Oh, boy. I mean, anything you want. Go-go gadget copter. that This helicopter would come out of his, ha- his hat and he could fly. I mean, he could reach across the room. Bionic man, computer enhancements, transhumanism. He's transitioning from a limited little biological pff, useless animal to this machine man. That same year, and you can see how the uh, – this transhumanism is being pushed. We got war games. Matthew Broderick is this c- computer hacker. He understands computers so much that he sits down at this computer. Would you like to play a game? And unknown to him, he thinks he's playing a video game. And I'm not even covering video games in this episode and what that does to us. But starts playing this game and almost starts World War III. We're yeah. still in the middle of the Cold War, by by the way. You know, keep in mind um, the legacy of the Trinity site is still with us. These horrific weapons that are only used to threat if we're lucky because nobody wants to use them because they're that destructive. And are they keeping peace? I mean, the whole idea was like, wow, if we got a weapon this big, maybe this will be the key to peace because nobody will want to use it. But as we have these weapons, there's still wars happening everywhere. People are still killing themselves in all the old ways. But now we've got these weapons that everybody's scared some fucking nut job sooner or later is just going to use.
1: Oh, you just reminded me that that uh, that term schismogenesis, I hope I'm saying that right, um, there were two types, and one of them was called symmetrical. The example given was the U.S. and Soviet Union arms race. They matched each other.
0: Hmm. In 1983, the most significant thing that I found that happened in 1983 is the Internet is born. This changed the world. This maybe more than any other invention so far, changed our place in this world. These computers are being carried around now. Laptops are available. People are starting to have uh, computers in their homes. But there wasn't a lot to do with them until the Internet. Now the Internet changes the way we think, changes the way we process, changes what information is available. Um, Look at how the Internet permeates our lives right now. And this started It's like we opened a door into hell. Um, 1983. And one of the things that occurs to me about the 80s is even though these things were available, we didn't play them much. Not many people had a computer, and we didn't find it that impressive. We wanted to be outside. People could get a cell phone, but we didn't see why you'd want a cell phone. If I wanted to call my friends, I'd go home and just call them. You know, there was no reason to have a cell phone. It was interesting that. These technologies were available, but it's like at first they couldn't effectively sell them to many of us. We liked our lives. We wanted to go ride a bike. Who the hell wants to like try to carry around this cell phone? It's going to fall out of your pocket and break anyway. Um, who the hell wants to sit in front of this computer for long? All right, you play this game because it's kind of neat and new, but all right, that was boring. Let's Hey, you want to go play G.I. Joe's in the sand pile? You know, like it wasn't sold to us. And what do I find in the 80s? Following these products that aren't being used by, as I remember, you know, the kids around me, all kinds of programming, all this stuff telling us how cool the computer is. And next year after that, 1984, Terminator. Now, we talked about the technological singularity. Here it is. The technological singularity has taken over the future. The, the war between man and machine Um is on and they've sent a robot back in time to stop one of the humans that's most effective at fighting the machines.
1: What was the year that they sent the robot back from? Wasn't it like 2029 or something?
0: It was something, yeah, (laughs) like pretty recent, you know, not recent, but like pretty soon we're coming to that. Yeah, 1984. Um, We also have electric dreams. So, you know, this whole idea of like falling in love with uh, a computer. It's about this guy that falls in love with the computer and again, I, it brings our sexuality into it. You know, I feel like there's a real perversion there. A, uh, the word that we ran into with the uh, transhumanism was technophile. File was considered enthusiasm in this context, which I, I questioned before because file, in so many other contexts, denotes a sexual relationship to something. So electric dreams. Can't get a, you're some nerd and you're feeling like you're not very popular and everything. And in the 80s, nerds weren't very popular. Um, Oh, fall in love with your computer. Wouldn't that be hot? Oh, man, like electric dreams. And Transformers, yet another cartoon where sentient computers come down and they turn into cool sports cars and weapons and jets. And uh, there's even a kid that like gets to hang out with the Transformers in the cartoons. And we start buying these toys that we get to turn these robots into all these cool cars and stuff. And I remember, they're in disguise. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, just the marketing. You know, it's being sold especially to kids in the 80s. It's paving this way for this computer-dependent life. And in 1985, this was published in Byte, which I believe is a magazine, in April of that year. The writer says, You awake one morning to find your brain has another lobe functioning. Invisible, this auxiliary lobe answers your questions with information beyond the realm of your own memory. Suggest plausible courses of action and ask questions that help bring out relevant facts. You quickly come to rely on the new lobe so much that you stop wondering how it works. You just use it. This is the dream of artificial intelligence.
1: Were you, um, you were saying about the mid 80s. If you got up to that point, that was a pretty good stopping point for this episode. Or
0: <laughs> this is every time we do one of these, like transhumans, you're like trying to stop me.
1: Well, I was just wondering because uh, we have to be out of this room in a little bit of time.
0: Well, um, let's see how far we get. Okay. I actually was hoping we'd get to 2000, but oh boy. Yeah. So uh, Small Wonder also came out that year about a little uh, Vicky the robot, and uh, again. You know, as a kid, I was kind of we were kind of enchanted with the idea of a robot that looked like a cute girl that would live in our house. Um, that would be kind of hot as a little boy. But I also wonder how much that was intentional. you know, meant to exploit a sexual relationship, a sexual idea about robots, maybe even in a pedophile kind of way. Um, I don't know what it's like as a you know a man back then to watch that you you distracted me. What are you looking at? Oh, the rain. Yeah, go ahead. Um, But, yeah, I feel like, you know, it was opening the door for a lot of, like, machines uh, just selling it to us. In 1986, we had a short circuit. You remember that?
1: I do remember that, Johnny Five. And I was also thinking about my childhood, Um, just real quick. You know how kids these days, they, they don't know what their identity is. And I thought for a brief time that I might be a robot, especially after watching that small wonder show. Like, how would you know You might think that you're human. I mean, to a little kid, it's very confusing. Like, you start to question things that you're not quite ready for. Like, well, shoot, maybe I'm a robot. Maybe that's why I don't feel like I fit in. Or, you know, maybe that's why I get things wrong and I get yelled at. Maybe it's because I'm not really their child. Maybe I'm a robot.
0: Watch You you really thought you might be a robot? Yeah. (laughs) I'll leave that alone. 1987 1987 was when RoboCop came out so we have a guy again you know cyborg and also Star Trek the Next Generation and I thought Star Trek the Next Generation was a really interesting piece of propaganda because we got Geordie LaForge and I never thought about him in these terms but he's a transhuman he's somebody with a biological limitation he was blind and now he's got these cybernetic implants in his head that he can put on these glasses and not only see but see beyond human ability he can see infrared and all these energy patterns and everything And who's his best friend? Again, we're bringing these two roads together. How much can we get the machines to think like us and have artificial intelligence? And how much can we be enhanced ourselves with the machine parts? We're merging them. They're getting closer and closer. We have Data. Data was a really interesting character. He looks not quite human, but of course he's played by a human. So as the watcher, the viewer, we're relating to Brent Spiner, not Data. Data might indeed be a little bit of an off-putting, simulation of a human. But we see the humanity in data because he is in fact a human. <laughs> he's Brent yeah. Spiner. So there's all these episodes that kind of deal with like the rights of Androids. Should we is he property? Is he a human? Is he sentient? You know? That that got explored in quite a few episodes, which are really interesting. And of course we're watching it and we're like, well of course he has rights. Of course he's not just a tool. But what we're looking at is Brent Spiner. Brent Spiner, of course, is self-aware, sentient, not a tool. But I wonder if he actually was an android, if we would sense something else about data, something missing, something that did seem more like a simulation than a sentient creature, something more like a wrench than a human being. Um, But yeah, that was a really interesting character in uh, 1987, And in 1989, uh, two years after that, we're introduced to the Borg, the Borg who are part of the collective. The the technology that's got to spread, got to uh, assimilate every creature, every technology that it uh, encounters. And, you know, the Borg that seems to be a model for so much of where we're heading and also in 1989 is when the microchipping of pets begins. People are starting to put microchips in their pets Um, because who would want to lose your pet? The pet is going to, you know, like it begins to seem irresponsible. People ask, have you microchipped your pet? Before, you know, sometimes things just took their own path. Sometimes animals wanted to run off. Um, But now it's a new level of control that we're actually sticking little microchips underneath the skin of things. That vision of the cyborg is starting to um, manifest in reality. But, of course, not with humans yet. Not so much. With the pets. Yet. Yet. And in the early 1990s, the transgender activists in the UK um, began to campaign for the Gender Recognition Act. I see this as a huge ploy in the transhumanist agenda, Um, whether it was intentional or not or whether they just benefited from it. Because transgender, for one thing, they're fighting for the right to be whatever they say they are. This is a disassociation from the body. In other words, it's a whole paving a whole philosophy for I am not bound by my biological limitations. It is one of the tenets, one of the foundation stones of transhumanism, and it's creating a demand for technology. You cannot become a simulation of a sex you were not born into without advanced technology, and it's imperfect. You're still not a woman. Somebody, a doctor, could study a man that's had a sex change and still tell, okay, this person was not born a woman. So this craving, this maniacal need for the technology to advance, to truly be whatever you want to be, to not be bound by these awful biological limitations that have kept us in this human hell for so long – the 90s is really getting pushed and it's become a human rights issue brilliant move now if you give a shit about your fellow human beings and their suffering god damn it why don't you accept these these tenets i feel like this was a masterful chess move that was really picking up in the uk in the 1990s and the fucking uk man united kingdom god of all the people they seem so quick to bend their knee and give themselves to whatever madness whatever agenda um
1: that might be by design. And I was just gonna jump in there and say the next step if you're doubting and you're you're thinking that this is like hate speech, the next step has already
0: happened. What do you mean? Trans species. <laughs>
1: I'm yeah. not joking.
0: Yeah, that's coming up. And um early 90s, and in 1992, we've got Lawnmower Man, which was supposedly based on a Stephen King short story, but they completely changed the story. I had read the story when the movie came out, and I'm like, this is completely different. It's all about virtual reality, basically a person being downloaded into a computer. And it's very clever how these movies are made because they're always told as warning tales, but they're always really neat and exciting. So at the same time you're being warned, you're also being sold this stuff. It's looking more and more like the video games that are developing that give you these... uh, good feelings they feel like fun they feel like excitement they feel like your fantasy world and the first self-checkout that same year in 1992 came out at the price chopper supermarket new york city now self-checkout it's just one more step what do you call it the the study of division what's that called
1: oh schismogenesis
0: yeah I see the self-checkout as a big tool of schismogenesis. It could be schismo, like a schism. I'm not sure. You used to have to wait in line, and I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm waiting in line, sometimes I wind up talking to the people in front of me or behind me. Then you get to the cashier, and uh, often you at least exchange, like, hey, how's it going? And sometimes she's really friendly, and you get into a neat conversation with her. But one more human interaction in our increasingly unsocial life that we don't have to deal with a person. How much nicer and more convenient it is just to get in front of the machine. Oh God, don't we love the machine? Isn't it making life easier? And in 1995, we got the first GPS. This was installed in an Oldsmobile. It was the uh, GuideStar. And man, I remember seeing these things pop up in cars and like suddenly nobody knew where the hell they're going. Sometimes the GPS worked, but When it didn't, somebody would be looking for a Kmart and drive right past the Kmart with the big sign. They're not looking around anymore. Um, I can't overestimate how much the GPS, I feel like, began to affect our relationship to the land, to our own observations, and how we move through our landscape. We're not paying attention anymore. We feel like we don't need to. Every time we invent a tool, we quickly, whatever part of us that didn't need the tool to begin with, begins to atrophy so quickly. Um, Even as a teenager, when I'm not looking for that, I'm not like trying to see what's wrong with technology, I couldn't ignore that. Every time I got in a car with GPS, people were just stupid. They'd run over curbs and stuff. They just got so addicted to listening to the computer tell them where to go that they weren't looking anymore. Now you got people that can't even fathom reading a map.
1: I just wanted to do the next one. Go. In 1996, July 5th to be exact, Dolly the Sheep was cloned. And I have a personal story about this, I'll try to keep it quick, but uh, Dolly the Sheep was actually cloned from a mammary gland cell, a booby cell. Um, And this proved that a cell from a body part, a specific body part, could recreate a whole individual being. And actually three sheep were used to make dolly. One was like, they took out the DNA. A second one, they like implanted, or they took the egg and they like fused the DNA in it. And then a third one brought it to gestation. Um, I remember I clipped this out of the newspaper and I was 15 years old at the time. And it wasn't because I was so proud that science had cloned a sheep. I put it in my book and reflecting back I had fear. I thought that this was going to be something that changed my life forever in 1996 as a 15 year old.
0: Yeah, and indeed, I think it has. Um, I really felt like in 1996 like that really felt like lines were getting crossed that shouldn't be um, Cloning. I mean it's just opening the door for so many as we keep talking about you know technology has always run the risk of uh making mistakes which it tends to do so when we start actually dealing with the fundamentals of life itself and arguably you know that's already been kind of um tampered with with all the things we've discussed so far yeah it was a scary line to you know people already know like the the any species already knows how to reproduce itself in a relatively healthy way that works. It doesn't need to be improved. So cloning isn't about improvement. It's about exploitation and control. And anything based on fundamental uh, reasons like that is some pretty scary territory. And now we've gotten to 1997, and this is where I wanted to at least get to 1997. Okay. In 1997... Max Moore's wife – Max Moore was one of the founders of the World Transhumanist Foundation, I believe is what it's called in the early 80s. His wife, Natasha Vita Moore, ran in the Green Party for the 28th Senatorial District of L.A. But she quit after a year saying that the Green Party was, quote, too neurotically geared towards environmentalism, end quote. When I first read that, I thought, what a stupid thing to say. You join the Green Party and you don't like them because they're too geared towards environmentalism? But then we watched some interviews with her, and I realized she is an extremely intelligent woman. So it didn't make sense that an intelligent woman would say something that stupid. So I began to wonder, why would she say something like that? And I realized that the Green Party represents the cutting edge of finding new technology and trying new technology. Indeed. When people talk about how to address climate change and pollution – like I said, just like electricity, the discussion is never, do we need it? Can we just do without it? Let's leave it alone. It's how do we adapt it? We need to invent something new. Let's push beyond what already got us to such a horrible place, and let's push beyond that. And maybe if we push far enough, we'll come out of the horrible place with new technology. So anybody that's really attracted to technology, even if they don't give a shit about the environment, might gravitate towards the Green Party. <clears throat> And I've heard a lot of things that question whether climate change is real, and I put, I ignored that for a long time. I thought those were just the gas industry kind of people. Um, I can see that we're doing horrible things to the environment. In my own direct experience, I see litter. I see fields buried in kudzu from disturbance. Um, I don't doubt that we're having a destructive impact on the environment. But this whole wide, global, promotional climate change Um, that we're destroying the entire planet in that kind of way, that level of fear, I'm beginning to wonder how much of that is either outright propaganda or being used to manipulate us into a technological push by the Green Party, perhaps funded by transhumanists, technologists, people that really are interested in getting everybody on board with pushing technology as far as it can possibly go through people's fear of this climate change, which may be exaggerated or at least exploited. So there's where I think the link is why she joined the Green Party. We watched a great interview with her, um, and I was really impressed. Like, if you really want to see a transhumanist represent the transhumanist point of view, try to find an interview with uh, Natasha Vita-Moore. And she talks about how she thinks the people that are opposed to transhumanism are afraid of change. And it was so funny she's such a talented propagandist because as she's doing this interview, she talks about how she's got this library of books. She even makes a point at one of the inter- part of the interview when he says, "What have you read lately?" to look at her library of books. She wants to really emphasize like, "Oh, relax if you're not comfortable with fast changes. Look at me. I still love books." She talks about her she's got this outdated headset which gets brought up in the conversation pointedly. She wants everybody to see, look at me. You're afraid of change? I'm one of you guys. And there was something else. Do you remember? We mentioned like three things and we were watching it. Like, did you see like how she, oh, it was something about like her website or something. It was like, oh, I I don't want to update it. Oh yeah,
1: she said her website was kind of outdated.
0: She went out of her way in the interview in some like, ways that were unnecessary to show you that she's actually not at the cutting edge of technology, even though she's one of the top spokespeople for the transhumanist agenda. And at one point in the interview, they asked, well, what would you say to, like, how come some people have a bad reaction to this? And she said, well, it's partly my fault. I didn't respect people being uncomfortable with change. It was so clear that she had addressed that. She had decided, oh, if I want to sell this, let me show people I'm not all about change. You can you can go really slow, and I'm going to, like, show that to you. Um, and she brought up really good points about transhumanism in saying, like, aren't we already on a path of trying to prolong life? Like, aren't medical people already, um, you know— trying to find ways to use technology and science to prolong life. Don't you already go to a doctor if you get an infection? Don't you already take modern medicine? Transhumanism is just the logical next step. What's the problem? You've already bought into this. And I realize she makes a really good point. She's right. The problem is that we have not been led there with eyes wide open. And part of that is intentional. We're not getting to choose for ourselves. We don't get to see the plan of where this is headed not that at this point i think many people would mind much Um, part of the one of the values of the transhumanist movement is technogayaism and this is a search for safe clean alternative energy to save the planet so this folds in very nicely with the green party Let's not stop using the technology that they say is harming the planet. Let's advance further while we continue to use this technology to find better technology. Because going back would be a nightmare. It's not even going back. Just stop using the thing. Just let it go. Um, She defines transhuman as someone transitioning from biological, a biological human, a post-human, Is zero biological. There's nothing left that's biological to them. This is a person who has completely downloaded their mind into a file. And again, the questions that we raised earlier, is this a human at all? How do you define human? What do you think you are? Are you your brain? Are you your thoughts that can just be picked out of your head and shoved into a computer? Is that you? The World Transhumanist Association, the WTA, became, became Humanity+. Plus. So if you ever run into Humanity Plus, that's the same thing. And uh, another thing that's uh, promoted by transhumanists is the idea of government by algorithm, that maybe one day, instead of all the sloppy voting and corrupt politicians, um, this could be run by computers. It would be perfect and eloquent, um, because as we know, computers just make things better and better and better. (laughs) And the three main objections to transhumanism that we've run into, and I agree that these are pretty good at kind of boiling it down to these three, are that one, transhumanist overconfidence will make things worse. An example that's often cited is people began breeding roses for appearance, but in the pursuit of breeding roses for appearance, along the way, accidentally, the roses lost their scent. So what if we get into breeding humans, let's say, for less anger? But inadvertently, we lose things like compassion. We see this over and over with every technology. There are unforeseen consequences. Almost everything that comes out that is not foreseen, if it is foreseen, it's silenced because people want to sell it to us. So the scientists are saying, whoa, let's think about this. They get shoved off to the side. The thing gets delivered, and it has consequences that are bad for people, that are bad for the planet. So this is a really good objection. The second objection is transhumanists disregard the benefits of life's constraints. We talked a lot about this uh, with one, Rise of the Transhuman, um, the place of dukkha or suffering. Maybe there's a place for these constraints. Maybe they push us into compassion, into humility, into wisdom. It's not just a matter of destroying the constraints, the constraints serve us. These, you know, I think about. uh, Chuck Jones, he would do the Roadrunner Wiley and Ride Roadrunner cartoons and he had like these, these rules that like you have to follow these really rigid rules for a Wiley, uh, a Roadrunner cartoon because he believed that the constraints would actually push people into levels of creativity, new levels of creativity um, to actually push against the constraints and I think life is kind of works like that, these constraints serve us it's not, if we do without the constraints, life is empty, don't we already see that playing out the more things we can do, look how pointless people feel. We've got you know, supposedly machines doing all these tasks we didn't have to do, and what do we do? We're fucking on medications. We're depressed. The suicide rate is soaring. We're getting on video games to just make us feel hollow and distracted. Um, it's not a good existence we're moving into. I don't know how people miss that. And the third objection is that this will increase cr- will increase inequality. You're going to have have have-nots who are getting enhanced in ways unforeseen in the past, and you're going to have the people that aren't getting enhanced. So that divide will grow. You're going to have people with cognitive enhancements, physical enhancements. They're stronger. They're living like four or five times as long. Maybe they don't die at all. And you got the people that are still like, I don't know if I want to live that way. I don't know if that's a good thing. And this divide, our society is going to cater to the people that are buying into it and leave behind the people that are not. And those people that are not can't just go back to living a more natural life because of what we've done to the planet. Where do they go? There's no buffalo to hunt. The streams aren't full of salmon anymore. The streams are actually polluted. They're dangerous to eat the fish in so many places. So we've already seen this happen right from the Industrial Revolution till now that These machines create situations that really tend to divide us, create a big gap. And Teresa, you wrote down transhumanism is a cult. Would you mind uh, mentioning what you mean by that? Woo.
1: Um, You know, (laughs) I feel like it requires... The maid is about
0: to clean the room. Don't worry about it. I'll... uh... Answer the door if she knocks and tell her we'll be out in a few minutes. So take your time with this question.
1: Yeah. I guess I was thinking about this a while ago, so I'll try to um, summon my thought that I had. But basically, it's, um, it's you're giving your life over to this ideology. It's not that you can really have one foot in and one foot out because we're already in it. Like Gumby's been saying, we're already. Transhumans and transhumanists, um, whether we have that label or not on our Wikipedia profile, but if you think about like all of the things that have led up, all the timeline that Gumby's talked about, and how you can't really escape it. So I don't know. I, I guess I'm rambling here. I, I, I can't remember much about what my thought was at the
0: time. (laughs) Well, when I read that, I think about how we talked about science as a religion and that there are very uh, faith-based things behind it. A transhumanist like a scientist will try to act like they're being completely objective just following the facts, but there are certain things like who gives someone the right to experiment on animals to advance this technology? Uh, What is the belief that things aren't good enough? Like I said, technology never is invented to address a problem. It creates problems, which then the next technology addresses. So what is the belief that we need to keep changing, that we need to advance somewhere, that we're not already in a place that's good enough when the very science that is informing us has so many indications that people that don't have it – Don't share our drug addiction. Don't share our mental illnesses. Don't share our suicide rates. What is this weird cultist religious belief that pushes us into this abyss? That's what I think about transhumanism being a cult. And, um, you know, Teresa, I think brought this up, but uh, we were talking about the term. Well, we got wondering what sapience meant because there's something in the future where they uh, talk about giving an animal, making an animal sapient, and, of course, The Latin name for the human animal is Homo sapiens. Well, it used to be Homo sapiens. Now it's Homo sapiens sapiens. So Homo, you know, do you know what Homo specifically means in these terms? I don't. I'm not sure either. But sapiens means wise. So we're saying it twice. We're like, we are the wisest of the wise apes. We are so fucking wise. We're just like, oh, we got to say it twice. We are Homo sapiens sapiens. Obviously I'm not. And maybe this is not the name of what we are so much as the name of our psychosis. If we're calling ourselves the wise, very wise ape, doesn't that more indicate something about our uh I'm trying to say what's that word when you're so self-involved? It's slipping my mind right now.
1: Well is it hubris?
0: Well, hubris, yeah, our madness, our uh, starts with an N. Oh my God. It's a simple word. We know it very well. It's just right at this moment when somebody, a narcissism oh. to think so highly of ourselves as we're causing so much destruction. I think we've named our mental illness. We have a case of homo sapiens sapiens. This is what we need to treat. I think we've just, it's a synonym for what to go. I don't think another, uh, people would necessarily say, we are the wise, wise people. And if they did, they'd probably have a lot more reason to say it than we do. Um, And to kind of end our 1997, I wanted to get further, but we're not going to get further this episode. Um, This is also the year that Tamagotchi, that little computer, goes worldwide. It was uh, already released in Japan the year before, but now it's all over the world, and kids are carrying around a little toy, a little computer that wants to be fed, that acts like a living thing. So instead of having something that looks like a doll or whatever, now your computer is your pet. It's your toy. Um, you it's, can serve it. It's a brilliant piece of propaganda. Thank you, Japan, for, yes, serving it. It makes demands on you. you, you it's changing the relationship we have to the machine. More and more of this blurry line between the machine as a tool, a neutral thing, they're trying to blur it with these characters we've mentioned, and now with Tamagotchi, this fad. And it so often gets marketed to kids. All the way back to the Prussian learning system, um, it was figured out that if you want to really... Control a culture, get a hold of the kids. This is where development happens, right in those early years. And if you can show them cartoons, you can introduce them to comic book characters, you can give them toys, that forms the a relationship that influences their entire lives. Think about the people now. These were the people raised on these cartoons. These were the people that had Tamagotchis. Um, 1997 is also the year that Deep Blue... Um, Artificial intelligence has finally gotten smart enough to beat the world chess champion, Gary Kasparov. Before 1997, it was assumed that a computer couldn't beat a chess master. They were just too good. That human element, that unpredictability, um, a computer, no matter how much it computed the moves, couldn't quite win against the top chess players. In 1997, that changed. AI now is smarter than humanity, at least when it comes to chess. So let's wrap up right there if you want to uh take us on our outro.
1: Yeah, I really liked how um this was kind of layered, you know. I think about these uh, um transparency sheets that teachers used to use in school, like the overhead projector, and they'd like have one, but then they'd put one on top of it and it's like, oh, that like brings it more together, brings it even more together, like the picture is getting colored in. And they're trying to kick us out or make us pay for another day. Um, So I'm going to um, read our listener right in. And uh, this is from Tim from Maine. And he listened to the first episode, Rise of the Transhuman, and wrote, Major nerve hit on this one. Autonomous vehicles will be part of our movement toward our non-human future, from drone delivery, Uber pickups, to machines. The transhuman won't have to guide these machines anymore. I'm seeing it in agriculture and dirt digging contracting. The tech is increasing fast. We're even looking into robots on our processing lines in the form of color scanners and picture scanners to remove unwanted berries, I should send you some blueberries in a dried form, but you don't have an address. Hit me with a private message, and I will see what I can do. And we appreciate Tim uh, for always writing in, and thank you for the offer of blueberries. And that's insane, but that is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, why question it? You know, maybe that's what I was thinking about, you know, transhumanism as a cult. It's like, we don't question it. We just propagate it. We continue it. We have more technology beginning even more technology, because that's how we solve things.
0: Yeah, I want to thank Tim for the offer for the blueberries. Hopefully we can uh, cash in on that at some point. And um, just to kind of back up what Teresa said, you know, I feel like we are transhumanists. Um, We're using the technology right now to uh, enhance our biological limitations to even complain about this. Um, They've got us. These wires have created a spider web, an electrically powered radio, full of radio radio wave spider web, um, that we're surrounded by what they think. We're surrounded by their voices. Um, it would just it would be an extreme act at this point to try to extricate ourselves. But I feel like one of the first things we can do is see it. It is in fact not us against them. they don't react more strongly to our resistance because they know they've got us we're playing their game even as if as we pretend to oppose it we're no threat to them we actually are advancing their agenda every step of the way and uh yeah if we can if we can really really see that maybe we can go from there and i don't know where we can go but uh i agree we need to we need to really wake up to this and um I hated how rushed this was. I think it was a mistake now that we uh, did this in a hotel room, knowing that the time was over our heads like a sword. But, uh, we will try to continue the timeline in a future episode because it really picks up like kind of where, what we're trying to lead and we keep having a hard time getting all the things in places is, is after 2000, my God, that's the who so many agendas <laughs> push forward after that. That's where I got into the most stuff that just blew my mind. So, uh, yeah. We got to 1997. So woohoo. All right.
1: All right. I'm just going to make this quick. Our website is escapingsociety all one word.weebly with a B, dot com. You can contact us there and there's links to our videos on YouTube, our Facebook and a donate button and we appreciate you listening. Thanks.
0: Yep. Thanks.
1: Thank you.